The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 again. Romans chapter 3. Let me answer the question of a wonderful friend of mine who posed it last week in absolute love and care for me, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Uh, How long are we going to be in this justification by faith stuff? How long are you going to belabor the point? And the answer is a long time, because Paul does. This doctrine is so amazing and so profound that if you think, oh, that's great, and you can walk away from it without being freshly amazed, then you have not been freshly amazed. This is just beautiful, wonderful truth that we get to explore and be a part of in this amazing book. Paul wrote this book for a specific reason, and it was to identify doctrine, to combat false doctrine, and to equip the believer with right thinking about doctrine, which will provide right living, which will provide the comfort and the hope that we all desire. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. We looked at it last week. We're going to briefly look at it and then launch from there today. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Where then is the boasting? Remember, he has just said that God is just and God is the justifier of those who have faith. Where then is the boasting? Here's the answer. It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain... I I just love reading these next words, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Guilt is an interesting concept. We all understand the concept. We all have experienced guilt. We understand the word, at least part of it has a broad range of definition and a broad range of interpretation and an even broader range of application. The two most basic categories of guilt are moral guilt and legal guilt. Now, bear with me for a moment. Legal guilt comes from violating a criminal law, right? We talk about you're guilty or you're not guilty at the end of a court case where a verdict is given based on the fact that you have been indicted as a uh, perpetrator against a law, a violator of a law. Legal guilt has a lot of layers of complications, though, because moral codes, moral law codes, most legal codes in all the world and throughout history involve plea deals, the possibility of offering a plea, mitigation of offenses, even reduction of a penalty if you're good after you're sentenced, right? Moral guilt is different than legal guilt, however. Moral guilt, for example, comes from violating a moral standard. Now, you may say, what's the difference? Well, it may or may not overlap with legal guilt. You can be morally guilty without necessarily being legally guilty. For example, let's just say in a hypothetical universe that a child was instructed by his mother to clean his room. 
after being instructed to do so, there was no action taken. Would that child be morally culpable for not cleaning his room after being instructed to do so by any state municipality or city municipality? Is that a federal crime? Would it be a felony to not clean your room? But would there be moral guilt? Would that child be guilty of not obeying morally a code that was not a legal violation? Well, the answer, obviously, is yes. Add to that, if that's not confusing enough, the idea of feeling guilty, a guilty conscience. Some people, however, feel guilty about a moral or legal offense, while others who commit the same legal offense feel no or little guilt. Now, without going too much into the story, I have to tell you a quick account of driving across the country from Detroit, Michigan to Los Angeles. And a friend of mine decided to help me drive that distance when my wife and I were moving from Detroit to to L.A. many years ago. And uh, this this gentleman, uh, who is a beloved brother, I love and respect him to this day, but he had a very sensitive conscience and would not go one mile per hour over the speed limit. Now, you have two choices. You can applaud that, or you cannot applaud that. Let's just say that I probably drove most of the way across the country. When it comes to the Bible, however, the idea of a moral conscience and a guilty conscience, the idea of being guilty legally and the idea of being guilty morally all coalesce and they all come together in one sentence of guilt against every human who's ever lived. God has revealed his standard and his standards in his word. That's why we have the Bible. That's what the word of God is. It's the revelation of his character and it's the expectations he has on our character to be like him. We are so wonderfully graced by God to know what he expects. If you look back at the, at the ancient Near Eastern religions and the prayers that were offered and the machinations that were tried to uh, be accomplished in order to earn the favor of the God, you understand how wonderful it is that God says, here's who I am and here's what I expect. There's no guesswork. Not only that, he says he's immutable, which means he doesn't change. He won't be different tomorrow than he was today. He's revealed himself and he's revealed his standards in the Bible, in his word. Specifically, though, that began in the Old Testament with his law, his moral law, the law he gave Israel, which revealed himself through Moses to the children of Israel and revealed his standards of behavior, his standards of thought, his standards of religious and moral sacrifices that would be made, where you would give up choices you would make for God and give up the best that you had to sacrifice for him. And these moral standards outlined by God are the legal definitions of guilt and non-guilt in heaven's court. Remember, moral guilt, legal guilt, a feeling of guilt. How does that all coalesce together? It comes together before God. Now, here's the problem. Not everyone feels guilty at the same level. You have some people who are very sensitive in their guilt and some people who aren't. That doesn't take away the legality of a person's guilt. Listen, whether we feel guilty or not, when we violate the speed limit, we're guilty, right? 
Just tell the officer who pulls you over, you know what, I just, I just kind of thought it was okay to go this and not that. Um, I hesitate to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway because it was an embarrassing moment. A few months ago, we had uh, the, one of the uh, theologians and the chief teachers from the Expositor Seminary uh, with us, Dr. George Zimick. Uh, who was with us, Bob? You and George and me. And we're going down to get some lunch. And I, had, uh, <clears throat> I was in my son's Jeep, which at the time was getting its license. So I had a paper license. I didn't, I, and I had this, this, the metal license plate in, my, in, my, in the car. I just hadn't put it on. I'd gotten it that morning. And we were heading out to lunch, and I stopped at a red light not far from here, turned right, and a policeman pulled me over. And I thought, oh, that's okay. He, he sees that there's no license plate back there. I'm going to show it to him. He's going to give me a high five. Good job for doing this, and we're going to move on. It's not exactly how it worked out. He says, you turned right on red, didn't you? I said, absolutely. Yes, I did. I, it's legal in Kansas. Don't you? Doesn't everybody. He said, and by the way, let me confess now that it's at the corner of 75th and um, uh, Mission Road. He said, did you not see the sign that says no turn on red? No. <laughs> and then to add insult to injury, he says, there's actually two there. And my first thought was, don't lie to me and don't mock me. This is not funny. Then he adds, remember Bob, he says, if it were at night, I'd let you go. I'm like, what? Like, it's lit up at night. I've seen it. Anyway, so he writes me a ticket that I had to pay. And then I, this was with my <laughs> Dr. Zimmick in there. And now I'm not only responsible for what I did wrong, I'm responsible for my response, which is not always fun. So I drove around the parking lot, and I went and looked, and sure enough, as big as you can, there are two big signs, no right turn on red, which I had done, I don't know, maybe 300 times in the past. <laughs> Just because you don't know a standard, though, doesn't mean you're innocent of violating that standard if you violate it. God says, this is what I've said. Footnote to that, one good reason to read your Bible is it's a good thing to know what we're going to be accountable to and for to know what God expects, to know how to please him in a way that brings honor to him and joy to us. Romans 3.23 says, all have sin. All have sin and fall short of the glory of God. If that's not enough, and also in th chapter 3, verse 10, it says, there is none righteous, not even one. Not even one person is righteous. Now, by righteous, you've got to go back to the whole uh, beginning of the book of Romans. Being righteous means being innocent, not being guilty. Being right before God, not having anything by which God can say, you deserve hell. Now, that is, that's not possible by any of us. No human can achieve that standard. The first three and a half chapters then of Romans, which we've been studying for some months, makes the point over and over and over that every man, every woman, every child, every human, no exceptions, are guilty before God and heaven's court by violating his standards. Now, you might say, I didn't know his standards, and the point is, it doesn't matter. Because he says in chapter 2, verse 14, even the law of God is written on our moral conscience in our hearts. That all, if all we had were our conscience, we would be condemned because we violate that moral standard. 
How many court cases in our legal system can you remember in which an obviously guilty person walked free on a technicality? Or how many offenses can you remember where a person walked away with a lesser punishment for lawful reasons? Let out with half time served because of good behavior. How many times do we know that, or have you been instructed even lawfully, that if you have a certain traffic ticket, that you can, by appeal through the court system, totally legal, have that reduced to a lower charge if you'll go to traffic school? The point is, our law gives us outs, it gives us footnotes, it gives us exceptions, it gives us appeals. Even more than that, there's the whole appeal process. You understand a person can be tried for murder, found absolutely guilty, and there's an automatic appeal. You know what that means? There's automatically a second chance. I bring that up because nothing can be farther from the truth in heaven's court. There are no appeals. There are no exceptions. There are no reductions of sentences. There are no mitigating lawyers who can come in and reduce the sentence. Real guilt is what Romans identifies, and real guilt is what Romans solves. I think our justice system has made us anesthetized to the real guilt that we all have. God has created a way for a guilty sinner, hopelessly guilty before God, to be declared, though, not guilty. Now, if I were to tell you that you are guilty before God, and because of the guilt of our sin that you've had since birth, you deserve, I deserve, we all deserve to go to hell, a real burning, fiery hell with a real angry God who will punish in hell forever. forever. Not not with Satan as the ruler, but with Satan as your, your captive, your, your cellmate. And yet, God has made a way for you to avoid that. Would not, that not be something fairly interesting to the soul? That's called good news. That's what the gospel is. That's what the book of Romans is about. And as we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 and verse 3, the good news of God, the gospel of God, God concerns his son concerns Jesus Christ. It's good news how God gave his son who died a death he did not deserve for those who did deserve that death. And here's the most amazing truth. How in the world can we be declared not guilty for everything we've done and everything we are? Now, if you understand the depth of our guilt, if you understand how woefully inadequate we are to make up for that guilt, if you understand how condemned we are, the answer to that question, how can we be declared not guilty, as we've said for weeks and months now, should be overwhelming, should be shocking. You should automatically say, that can't be true. Because here's the answer. How can a guilty sinner be declared righteous and not sinful before God? By believing that God has made provision for your sin. You say, well, it's got to be more than that. 
The Romans would have said that. The Jews would have said that. The Gentiles would have said that. That's why he continues to hammer this point over and over and over all the way through the end of chapter 7. You're not guilty, declared not guilty, because you believe that God has made a way. What is that way? We've said it over and over and over and over. It is the great exchange where Jesus, having perfect righteousness, because he is God, because he obeyed God, active and passive obedience. He obeyed God. He was God. Because of who he is, said, I will give, impute is the biblical word, I will impute, I will give my righteous standing before God to a sinner in exchange for their sin, which he bore on a cross, being crucified by Romans, by Jews, by pagans, and ultimately crushed by God the Father. If you don't regularly say about the gospel, that sounds too good to be true, then you are not understanding the gospel rightly. So, before you accuse me of belaboring the point over and over, remember that Paul does that. It's the reason that this incredible doctrine of faith alone, being saved by faith alone, is highlighted. Look at what we looked at last week, these two verses. Where then is the boasting of God justifies, God is the just, he's the one who makes righteous, then who can brag? Who can say, I got saved because I'm better than so-and-so? God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't grade on a sliding curve. God doesn't grade on comparison. Well, you're better than that person, so I'll take you and not him. Because that person can say, well, I'm better than that person. It goes on down the line. Where's the boasting, Paul says? He says, it's excluded. No man, we sang it, no man can boast in riches and in wealth and in strength and say, look at who I am. God would be so profited if I were saved. It's the old thing that probably we naively believed in high school. Boy, if you, could, if you can get the, the quarterback and the head cheerleader saved, what an impact that can make on the school. Now, Paul says, no, we're... We're the not many mighty and the not many noble. We're the, the, he says, the dregs of society, the scrapings of a bowl. By what kind of law will we be boasting? Of works? He says, no, but by law of faith. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that God has acted and you have believed. That's the only thing. The boast is in the Lord. And then that great sentence that we looked at, that phrase we looked at last week. For we maintain that a man is justified, made righteous, innocent, not guilty before God. How? By faith. Do you understand? Just by faith. Now before we leave this verse, which divided church history as we looked at last week into Protestants and Catholics, I want us to take some time to get a a big picture on the doctrine of justification. And so what I'd like for us to do uh, together, just kind of theologically and even topically, is this. I want us to look at the meaning, uh, excuse me, at the the theological facets like a diamond of justification. We're going to look at five of them this morning. Five theological facets of the doctrine of justification. Here's the takeaway. Here's the practical application today. We should walk out of this study looking at God and his truth and his word and just say, wow. Just just wow. How can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? 
Five theological facets of the doctrine of justification. The first, we've already talked about the meaning of justification. What does justification mean? Justification is a big word that just means declared not guilty. The verdict is not guilty. Also, it means made righteous. God treats a person who is guilty of sin as not guilty. That's justification. It means that God treats an unrighteous sinner as righteous. That's justification. Now, to justify is the opposite of condemn. It means to save, in other words. When God treats the sinner as righteous, he declares them so. Now, this is really important. If you you haven't been listening for a few months, please, please, please get this. He declares the sinner righteous. It does not mean that the person is actually made to be righteous. Have you sinned lately? This is the difference between, as we studied last week, the Catholic doctrine of justification and its implications and the Protestant doctrine of justification and its implications. In the Catholic scheme, grace is, these are two important words, Grace is infused into the believer. And once that grace is infused into the believer, the believer is actually righteous. Infusing is different in a different word and a different concept than the word imputing, which means declared. It means you're declared righteous. You aren't right before God because you are righteous. You're right before God because God says you are. And if you think you're righteous, I would just say, just take a videotape around the next couple days and record yourself and see how that worked out for you. That's grace as well. The fact that, that we're counted righteous, even though we're not righteous in our actions, you say, what is that? We'll get there in a minute. That's called not called justification. That's called sanctification. Two different concepts. Again, the Catholic notion is that righteousness is infused into a believer. The Protestant notion is that righteousness is imputed or accounted, declared onto a believer. Justification is a legal action. It's a declaration. It's a court verdict that God declares a sinner righteous as though he had satisfied the very law of God in its obedience. Why? Because there was one who did satisfy the the obedience of the law, one who did obey in every way possible. That's Jesus. Wait till we get to chapter 5. I can't wait for this. Jesus' righteousness is then given to the believer. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we become as righteous as Jesus? Again, no, just look in the mirror. But it does mean that when God looks at us, he looks at us as if we, it's almost unspeakable, as if we had lived the life of Jesus Christ. Wait till we get to chapter five. So the meaning of justification is you're not guilty, even though you are. Why? Because it's a declaration, not a transformation. Say, what about that transformation? That's called sanctification. We'll get there. Wait till we get to chapter 8. Secondly, those look at the grounds of justification. We looked at this briefly last week. We'll look at it a little more closely right now. The grounds of justification is based entirely on the sacrifice and shed blood of Jesus. Romans 5, 9, now having been justified by his blood. 
We have been declared righteous because Jesus died for our sin. He took our sin. He paid for our sin. Sin doesn't just dissolve. God isn't just up there showing favorites. He paid for sin with the death of his son. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, listen, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but now made alive in the spirit. Justification then is a gift of God's grace based on Jesus and what he did. The grounds of our justification is the work of Christ. Where's the boasting? It's not with us. We can't boast for what we did. It's not by works. And we're not going to talk much about this because the rest of the book, especially, especially, especially chapter 5, talks about his death and the gift of God for son. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the grounds is that death, the death of Christ. Our sins don't get away scot-free. Our debt is not erased. Our debt is paid by the death of Christ. How does that work? We've been talking about this, the means of justification. How do we get justified? The means. Well, the means of justification is faith. Now, we ran through some verses so fast last week. If you want to try to turn there and look at these, I think it's, it's worth a little, uh, little Bible study. You can oil up your spines of your Bible. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 22, while you're there. Even the righteousness of God through what? Through faith. In Jesus Christ, for all those who what? Who believe. Well, there's no distinction. So righteousness, justification is granted to those who believe through faith. Romans 4, verse 5. But the one who does not work, but here it is, believes in him who justifies. Justifies who? The ungodly, the guilty. His faith is is accounted, credited, not infused, credited to him as what? Not guilty, as righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. I can't wait to get there. Faith into grace in which we stand. We never get beyond faith. Look over Galatians. The book of Galatians, chapter 2. Look at a couple of verses here. Galatians 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified, he's not made righteous, he's not declared not guilty, he doesn't deal with his sin by the works of the law, by being better, but through, here it is, faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Faith, belief, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Do you see how, how many times he belabors the point in one verse? Look at Galatians 3, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Why? The righteous man shall live by faith. Quoting Habakkuk. Galatians 3, 24. 
Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Why? So that we may be justified, how? By faith. Galatians 3, 26. For you were all sons of God. How do you become a son of God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Are you getting the point? Familiar territory, Ephesians chapter 2. I know you know these verses, but just see the string of faith, faith, faith that rings in these verses. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. How? What's the means? Through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of you doing anything of works, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 3, 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now we're getting into part of the sanctification. He dwells in our hearts. We enjoy Christ. He lives in us with us through faith. Over the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. We'll stop with this verse. We could go on and on. Philippians 3, 9. Oh, that I may be, Paul says, that I may be found in him How do you want to be found in him? This is Paul personally talking about himself. How do you want to show up before God, Paul? That I may be found in him not having a righteousness, a verdict of not guilty, of my own derived from the law, from my own effort, but that which is through faith in Christ. Are you getting the point? The rightness, the righteousness, the not guilty verdict which comes from God on the basis of, say the word, faith. The means of justification, believing. I love John 1, 12. But to as many as believed, he gave the right to become children of God. It's that simple. Number four, the application of justification. These next two are very quick. The application of justification. Can I, if I got on my knees and begged, would it, would it get your attention enough? Please, please, please remember, growth in godliness is not a result of Christian duty, but a response to God's grace. God is the one who causes the growth. Even Paul, he says, I plant a polished water. God causes the growth. God's the one who does it all. There's no human effort involved in our justifying faith. But the question always comes up, hang on, Rick, but isn't believing, isn't faith, isn't that a work? Aren't you doing something? Isn't that an action that's uh, involving your will and your volition? Aren't you working by actually, actually having faith? The answer is no, it's not at all. Not even faith that we have comes from ourselves. Faith is not our contribution. Justification is not the reward of faith. Justification causes faith. Regeneration gives us faith. The reality is that faith itself is a gift from God. You know why you believe Oh, you can sing all you, all you want, I have decided to follow Jesus, and there are verses that call us to do that, and I'm glad for that. But when you pull back the curtain, when you flip over the, the, um, the quilt and you see the, the, the real thread work that's going on behind that decision, 
The reason we believe is God makes us believe because we don't have morally neutral consciences and souls where we're saying, hmm, this is, by the way, Catholic Thomistic Thomas Aquinas theology who says, well, man is neutral, so he can choose God or Satan, right or wrong, heaven or hell. It's not how it works. Wait till we get to Romans 7. We are, Romans 6, we are bound, we're slaves to sin. We only obey our own lusts. So the reason we believe is God turns a switch on in our mind that gives us faith. So even our faith isn't a work. God gives us faith. Justification grants to us, by the way, two things. This is so critical. Two sides of the coin of justification. It gives us two things. It gives us a presence and it gives us an absence. It gives us a presence of God's righteousness in Christ. It gives it to us. It grants it to us. We don't earn it. We don't become it. It gives it to us. And secondly, it gives us an absence. What do you mean gives us an absence? It declares to us the absence of sin that we are absolutely guilty for. Even saying that makes me say, that's, say, say in my heart, that's just too good to be true. There's got to be some system I go through, some uh, 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 you know, laying on the rack and having my joints pulled out or something. That, that will it'll make God like me better. No, no, no. Nothing will make God like you better except his son. Now, let me just hint very briefly here that there is, on the application of justification, the big divide in, again, Roman Catholicism and and, uh, Protestantism has come because Roman Catholicism weds and confuses and intermingles justification and sanctification. Sanctification is, is the word that means to make holy. Our whole lives were being sanctified. Why are we being sanctified, by the way? Because we weren't totally, in, entirely sanctified at justification. He, if, think of this. If that notion, if infused grace was right, if God gave us the righteousness of Christ and made that in our ontology who we are, don't you think that sin would be a problem? Why is sin a problem? Wait till we get to Romans 7. The thing we do, we don't want to do. Find ourselves doing the very thing we don't want to do. I don't do the right things. I do the wrong things. Oh, wretched man that I am. You ever felt that way? You're in good company. So did Paul. That's sanctification. Where you're fighting against your own flesh and you're clawing and scratching to do what's right. You're, You're straining to be right and righteous. And unfortunately, the old Catholic notion of justification includes sanctifying um, requirements so that those are added in and the believer is made to feel like I have to do all these sanctifying things to be justified. Two different processes. Which leads us, by the way, the confusion of sanctification and justification is which leads us lastly to the protection of justification. I want to beg you to protect this doctrine to be a steward of this doctrine, not only in our church, Martin Luther says, the church stands or falls, the believer stands or falls on this doctrine, but in your own heart. The doctrine of justification is one of the primary targets of the enemy of your soul. Why? 
If you're off here, you're going to struggle first and foremost with your assurance of salvation. You're going to struggle with your trust in God. You're going to struggle with your understanding and love for the church. You're going to struggle with a host of other theological problems. Why? Because it's confusing justification and sanctification again. You need to protect that childlike awe and wonder that we are justified by believing what God has done. Now, let me skip ahead. A believer who says, I, I want God's justification, but makes no efforts in his sanctification, doesn't lose his salvation, doesn't lose her salvation, but that person proves that justification never actually took place. Protect this. You know why you struggle? You know why I struggle? You know why we struggle with assurance? If you haven't yet, trust me, you will. As a believer, lay in bed one night, probably after a day or an activity of sinning, and you will think, there is no way I'm really saved. No way. I can't be saved. Who would act like this? Now, it could be true that God's showing you, look, you're not pursuing sanctification. You need to be justified. But I find that the people who are tortured over their assurance typically aren't unbelievers. Unbelievers aren't tortured over assurance of salvation. But the person who's tortured over assurance has come to believe that salvation has to be more than by faith alone. And you know the word, we talk about it all the time. What's the word? Enough. It always comes with the word enough. Boy, I don't pray enough to be saved. Well, welcome to the rest of us. I don't obey enough to be saved. Well, I don't read my Bible enough. You fill in the blank with enough. My question is, when, when does that enough get enough? And God says, hey, standing ovation, come on. You're ready to come to heaven. Good for you. Uh, elbows the angels. We're having a party up here. Look, they finally gotten justification because they've added enough X, Y, Z to their... Well, there is not enough. That when you get to the point where you're saying, I can't be saved because I don't do this or that or the other enough, you are right where we started this morning. Where then is the what? Boasting. So are you really... Just process your theology out. If you get to that point, this should be encouraging, by the way. If you get to that point where you're saying, I can't be saved because I don't do X, Y, Z enough, are you really saying, aren't you really saying that when I do enough, then I'll really be saved? What did God say? You are declared righteous, made just in heaven's court. Remember, sanctification will happen the rest of our life. You are made not guilty, declared innocent in heaven. How? Why? Because of Christ, that's why. How? By receiving that by faith. We keep coming back to Martin Luther, but I love this quote I found from him on this issue this week. Martin Luther, who taught the, just, the doctrine of justification by faith so long, he says 20 years here, still struggle with it. Listen to what he says. I myself taught for 20 years the doctrine of faith alone by which 
embracing the merits of Christ, not his own, we stand accepted before the tribunal of God, heaven's great court. And yet, I love this, and yet the old and tenacious mire clings to me. This is Luther talking. So that I find myself wanting to come to God, bringing something in my hand for which he could bestow his grace on me. Do you see that? That's the enough. I cannot attain to casting myself on pure and simple grace only, and yet this is highly necessary. Do you understand that last sentence? It's so hard to actually trust. It's just faith. Yet it's highly necessary. Have you placed your faith in what God has done for your salvation? Look, the good news, if, if you're a visitor, if you're an unbeliever, maybe you've sat here for a long time and you've, you've never given your life to Christ. The good news is, the good news is this. You can be declared not guilty if you will believe that God has made provision for you not to be guilty by taking sin away on the cross and giving you Christ's righteous standing by imputation. Let me ask again, what kind of fool would say no to that? Who would walk out of here and say, no, I don't want that. No, I'd just rather show up in heaven and hopefully get on the scale and hope my good outweighs the bad or the bad guys are on the heavy side. Who, what kind of fool would say no to receiving Christ's grace? Can I beg you, don't leave today without receiving that gracious gift. The enormity, God in flesh, we sing it, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Receiving that by believing it. It is almost too good to be true. And we'll come back and study it again next week. Is that fair? We were going to sing a song, but I've gone long tonight, today, Aaron, so we'll just save that for next week. Let me pray. Father, I'm, uh, I'm freshly amazed by grace. I can't believe, I can't believe. I, it's almost impossible to believe that belief is it. Faith, but that's grace. And having studied this, I understand, Lord, that there's nothing I could add that any of us could add anyway. Even if it was by works, what works would possibly please you? Amaze us afresh. While your heads are still bowed, let me tell you that uh, John and Sherry Rosenbaum will be over at the prayer room to my right. In just a minute, we'll dismiss. If... If God is working on your heart, if God is wooing you to believe, please don't run to lunch. Run to Christ. Come to the prayer room. Come and talk to the folks here. You can talk to people around you. We would love to tell you how you can be free from your sin today because of what Christ has done. Lord, dismiss us to our lunch conversations with amazing conversations about your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>